Hello everybody and welcome to another interview with myself, Richard Carter, data scientist at the Data Lab in Scotland. Today I'm very honoured to be joined by a titan of the data science world, I think it's fair to say, Kirk Bourne, principal data scientist and executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, Kirk is regularly ranked as the number one two big data influencer, has 190,000 followers on Twitter, I discovered this morning, and is well respected and known throughout the industry. Thank you, it's great to be here. So, Kirk, I believe you started your uh, journey uh, with a PhD in astronomy. That was your first uh, forays into the world of data, is that fair to say? You then had 18 years at NASA and followed by uh, a few years teaching data science projects at George Mason University. I wonder when you started off your career, did you kind of foresee the path that you were going to be on and, and the way that uh, the data science would be today? Well, obviously not, because my career started a long time ago and there was no such thing as data science. Uh, but I was always drawn into a science, uh, basically from the perspective of uh, this, the amazing world around us. And certainly my passion was astronomy. Uh, the universe presents itself in a marvelous and interesting ways. And so the data that people collect, the images people take and other things to reveal all kinds of interesting things happening up there. So ever since I was young, I was fascinated by the workings of things and how data collection evidence uh, can inform us about that. So I wasn't thinking about the data, I was thinking about just the insights into our universe. Mm -hmm. And of course, you get those insights from data collection. Uh, so I lived and breathed data my whole career as a scientist, but, but data science is sort of the, the newer thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I sort of caught that bug about two decades ago. Mm -hmm. uh, or By that point, I, I had already been in 10 years into my career working with astrophysics data, but when we saw data growing everywhere in every organization and every business, all of a sudden I said, gee, the things that I'm doing can be applied in other places, right. and even places that have very deep societal impact. Okay. Uh, specifically, I was working on colliding galaxy research, and there were maybe two or three people in the world who cared what I was doing. <laughs> if there was a Twitter back then, <laughs> I would have had two or three followers. <laughs> okay, But now I'm doing things, uh, working with people and working with organizations that have deep impact and uh, many hundreds of thousands of people care about these things. And it seems to be quite common uh, from the data scientists I've seen that this background in astronomy and astrophysics, because I guess you really are dealing with big data uh, in that field. Um, has that proved to be useful, would you say, in your career? I would say that the the, the the use of data every day in those in, in the sciences certainly is a is a, a good uh, starting point, if you will. Uh, I wouldn't say so much the word big data in that sentence. I think what what really matters uh, when you see a lot of uh, scientists, physicists, astrophysicists, biologists, chemists, uh, folks like that coming into the data science profession, and you probably see a lot of those. I mean, I have gone to conferences where half the keynote speakers are from a hard science like that. What, what, the reason I would say is because those people are natural born uh, scientists and, uh, in terms of like they, they, they know the process of science, uh, they have the built-in curiosity, uh, they know how to model, uh, simulate something, how to collect data to test a hypothesis, how to design experiments uh, to validate those experiments, refine them if they need to. So that's sort of a natural uh, training that scientists have. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's sort of, a, sort of a natural segue for those people to move into the data science profession because they have all the tools, techniques, uh, skills, talents, aptitudes, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. all, all of that package. Now, of course, a lot more people have that now than just hardcore trained scientists, right? So you don't need a PhD to do data science. Mm -hmm. 
but you do need curiosity. You need to have computational skill. You need to have literacy around data. And so, so you, you need aptitudes and talents, but you don't necessarily need the PhD. Sure. So is that one thing that you would say maybe separates some of the good data scientists from the great data scientists that you've met? Is this kind of more uh, soft skills or more, more innate curiosity, the kind of um, the mindset, if you will, rather than the command of tools and techniques? Yeah, yes, yes. I think it's, it's the, the creative genius you know, that, that separates the great data scientists from the good data scientists. And that creative genius can, has nothing to do with education. Sure. I mean, education certainly helps. I mean, it, it certainly helps in terms of professional development, career development, but that's, that, that, I don't think that's a, a factor in what makes a great versus a good data scientist. I often tell people the great, uh, the, this is not exactly answering your question, uh, but, but sometimes I tell people on a slightly different topic when they say uh, they're, they're looking for a job, and I say, well, a good data scientist goes on a job interview with a portfolio of, the, of all these different projects they've worked on, mm -hmm. you know, and then the success stories and the algorithms they've used and all this stuff. But the great scientist also, also has a portfolio, but the portfolio includes all the failed projects that they worked on mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the, the things that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And they talk about what they learned sure. and how they improved based upon those failures. And so if, if, you're, if you can do that, if you can see your failures, learn from them, advance from them, then that makes you the great data scientist. And, and again, how do you get yourself out of that quagmire, out, out of that failure, yeah. is creativity and innovation. Yeah. And so that creative genius, like I said, is not based on education, but it's based upon all those innate aptitudes of, of passion, curiosity, uh, inquisitiveness, you know, just a desire to learn more things. I mean, I, I tell people, if you don't have a desire for a lifelong learning, you better not get into this field because it's mm -hmm. changing extremely rapidly. I mean, the, the knowledge, uh, overturn rate is like every couple of years. It's literally, I look back at blogs I wrote three or four years ago and I said, did I actually write that? Because it, it seems so ancient now. Yes, yes. It's, it's kind of scary because, yeah. because I, I look at, when I was at the university, I was looking at the physics courses that were taught in the department that I was in and, and, and some of the textbooks were the same textbooks I used 40 years ago. Mm. And that's kind of scary. I said, it, certainly the science has changed more than, than that in 40 years, right? Yeah. Whereas in data science, I mean, if, if something that's two years old is considered stale now. Yes. Well, you were obviously involved in actually putting together data science degree programs, I believe, at George Mason University. I mean, uh, that must be quite a tall order, really, with, uh, with such a fast churn of uh, ideas and techniques. Well, what's interesting about that is that we were first in the game, so to speak, and so the, things weren't moving rapidly then. In fact, they were not moving at all. Uh, I, I, I left 18 years at NASA to to go to the university uh, to actually do this because I, I, by the time those year, years at NASA had elapsed, I'd already gotten the, bitten by the bug of data science mm -hmm. uh, and, and the belief that the, the world needed a data literate workforce, uh, that we needed a, a, a talent pool uh, for all business, all organizations, all industries, every, everything in life is, is digital. There's digital information everywhere. So whether you're doing sports or art or science, engineering, uh, policy, there's, it's informa digital information. And so uh, I left NASA, this was uh, in 2003, uh, became professor of astrophysics at George Mason University, uh, but I never taught astrophysics, I taught data <laughs> science. But it was, nobody knew about it then. So we were moving at a slow pace because there was no reason to move at a faster pace. It took like three years before we got the approvals to start the program and we, just start, we started the first uh, courses in 2007. And uh, we, we designed a curriculum and every, every year we modified the curriculum because we were seeing 
that we needed changes to, to meet the, the, the needs of the students and the, how we saw the market moving. But then by the year 2012, the whole world exploded with data. The McKinsey report came out. There's a famous report that came out and said that the world was going to be a million and a half persons short mm -hmm. in this field. Uh, in the United States, uh, the White House announced the National Big Data Initiative in 2012. And, and the third thing which made that the, the triple, <laughs> you know, the Bermuda Triangle of data science, if you will, in two, uh, 2012, the third thing that happened was this article written uh, by Tom Davenport and DJ Paddle called Data Scientist, the Sexiest Job of the 21st Century. Sure. So you had these, these three things conspire that suddenly everybody is paying attention to data science. Uh -huh. Suddenly everybody wants to be a data scientist. Suddenly every school now has a program in data science. So we were the first in the world and there weren't any other schools. There was, I think, one other school during that five-year period that had developed a program like this. Uh -huh. uh, the, uh, in the next few years, there's now 500 or more in the United States alone. And do you know, are we actually closing that skills gap or are the opportunities for the use of data science out there in industry accelerating at a pace which is even greater than we're able to train new people into the area? I think the answer is that the skills gap is still growing. I like to use the mathematical phrase that the, the, the difference between the two exponential growth curves is still exponential. <laughs> and so, the, uh, so we're, we're exponentially increasing the number of people we're uh, producing, you know, talented, you know, skilled, trained people. On uh, these programs, it's amazing the rate at which the training programs are growing. Every day, I see new announcements, uh, you know, you know, online courses, you know, individual, you know, private training institutes, all kinds of things, uh, plus the university programs. But the demand is like, far outpacing even that. You know, so so the skills gap is still growing. That's that's the scary thing. We think, oh, we're closing that gap, and and I think what's happened is that every organization, every business, every industry, everything. Everybody's figured out the, the power of digital information to inform, to inspire, to change, to transform uh, their business, uh, to create new markets, to innovate, to, to create new value. And that is the surge in demand is, is like, like a tidal wave that's on top of a tidal wave. <laughs> All right, but, but one big tidal wave uh, could certainly wipe out a smaller tidal wave. So even though we have this group, enormous growth in the talent pool, uh, we're still not keeping up. And I just wonder, one of the things that I'm um, always interested to find out about is, is in, in the courses around soft skills because it strikes me that a lot of times courses are set up to teach tools, techniques, algorithms, etc. But when I've um, gone out into the field and talked to data scientists, they talk often about the necessity for good communication skills and to be able to liaise with people who, who own the data, to be able to speak to the businesses and understand the business problems and then to be able to put their findings back to non-technical people and to explain what they've done to a non-technical audience. So I wonder, are these kind of courses actually addressing that part of, of, of a data scientist role as well? I believe that they need to. I, I haven't really looked into these courses to see if they are, but I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Uh, I, I talk about the seven C's, sailing the seven C's of data science. Uh, so that's just a metaphor, uh, but I actually came up with a list of 10 words that begin with the letter C, uh, which are the soft skills of a data scientist, right? And so like, uh, you know, like critical thinking, communication skills, uh, curious, uh, continuous lifelong learning, uh, 
these things like like courageous problem solver. Uh, so I'm sort of making these up as I go here. Creativity. But, 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 but I actually give a talk on the on the ten C's of data science. But I, but I call it the seven C's because that's a metaphor people are familiar. And then I tie that into sort of the explorer and the, the data scientist as explorer sailing the seven C's of exploration of these big oceans of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it sort of works together. But one of those one of those C's or, is consultative. Uh, okay, so what that means basically is you can have the conversation with a client, with a business owner, and you can you, you can hear their requirements. You can hear what they need to accomplish. You, you can learn what their outcomes are. So this is the one thing that I think needs to be in those courses is, is it's not about the shiny tool, you know, the shiny thing that you can create. It's about what is the solution? What's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the outcome you're trying to achieve? And if you can achieve that outcome with a very simple algorithm, Sometimes a very simple algorithm can solve the business problem. Mm-hmm. So listen to the business owner. So that so I, so my current role at, at Booz Allen is as a, as a consultant, and that and people say that just sounds so weird. That doesn't sound like science. That doesn't sound like academic science, which is where my background is. Mm-hmm. I said, but you're wrong because it's it, literally management consulting is three words to me: data to action. Okay, so how do you take this data and do something with it? And, that, and scientists are always doing that. You collect data, do I design a new experiment? Do I write a paper? Do I, do I uh, go get a grant? Do I build a different team? Do I do something different? Do I rerun the same experiment? You're constantly taking an action as a result of what you've discovered in your data. Mm-hmm. So the consultative person is the one who can sit and listen. They can have empathy mm-hmm. and not just talk their high-tech you know, high math language or high-tech computer language but listen to the language of the person they're helping. So before we get off this topic of my seven C's, another one of them, which, because people say, well, you do need the hard skills, right? Mm-hmm. And that, absolutely. So one of the seven C's, actually it's 10, <laughs> is uh, computational literacy. Mm-hmm. That is, you need to be able to compute. You need to have some kind of a hard computational skill. Okay, so again, it's a literacy, right? That is, it's a way of thinking. Can you, th- can you think computationally? And this is sort of a new thing in computer science education is they're actually teaching computational literacy. They realize that people don't understand you know, like data structures or conditional statements or parallelism. There's all kinds of concepts in computing people need to understand before they can sit down and code because otherwise you're just following syntax and you're not really appreciating the depth of power in your hand when you use that programming language until you understand what these concepts are. So computational literacy implies that you have a programming language or two under your belt that you could use and, you're, and you're, you have strength in. But it is more than that, it's a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. A way of, just so, so it's like when we talk about data literacy, which I talk a lot about, mm-hmm. data literacy is, is thinking about data. What can I do with this data? What kind of patterns am I looking for? Am I doing a class discovery like clustering? Am I doing trend discovery like correlation analysis? Am I doing anomaly detection like, like outlier discovery? Am I doing link detection like association analysis? What, so, so thinking about your data, now can I do this with numeric data? Or can I do this with text data? Can I do this with con- discrete data? Or do I need continuous variable? I mean, you need to be able to have that conversation. So in the consultative mode, we, when we, in, we discuss with a business owner, like a client in my business, we talk about what types of data, what data types do you have? And then, and then what is their question? Are you trying to predict an outcome? Are you trying to you know, see a probabilistic model of, of likely outcomes, like a risk model? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's different algorithms you will use mm-hmm. for different data types, and so you need to have that data literacy. In the same way computational literacy, 
I, I don't sit down and program anymore, so my role is more late, uh, executive advising and mentoring mm -hmm. and things like that. I, I wouldn't trust myself around it anymore, though 30 years ago I was the guy at NASA who did all that coding, right? So I was the guy mm -hmm. that did all that coding. But, and so I, so I, you would say I, would have, com I have computational literacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know Python, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I, I can beat anybody at, sure. at, with any coding exercise in Python right now. And uh, so to sort of close this point, you know, sometimes people will ask me that when I'm talking about this, they'll say, especially new data scientists or people who want to be data scientists, they, they ask me, uh, should I learn R or Python? And my answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's more, perhaps more important to actually get the mindset of a computer scientist and understand the tools that you command rather than actually worrying which specific one because as we know the, the rate at which this field accelerates and changes actually these tools may be well superseded but as long as you've got the right mindset you can always carry that forward in your career. Exactly. That's, that's the idea of the continuous lifelong learner. Remember that was one of my other C's. Sure. Uh, because if, 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 if I, I stayed stuck in what I learned and, and when I went to college, which was Fortran programming. Now, Fortran programming is still used in high-performance scientific modeling, right? Climate modeling and all kinds of things still use this language. So it's not in, in, in high-end engineering projects, but it's not visible in the data science world, right? It's just not a language that people use. So if I, you know, people who learned that language had stayed stuck in that language, they would still be stuck in that language and not, you know, partake, partaking of this current revolution. Whereas if people who are who allow themselves to continuously learn, uh, they will find themselves ready to go whenever the, the thing changes, the technology changes, the business changes, the world changes, our world has changed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, since we are, I say the world is data now, right? Everything seems to be digitized, digital signals mm -hmm. in healthcare and in, in commerce and everything. Mm -hmm. And if you're not part of that story, you know, then you're, you're a laggard, right? You don't, you yeah. don't want to be the laggard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I sometimes feel you have to kind of run to stand still in this field because uh, there, there's so much to learn and, and so many kind of things to keep on top of that actually is something that, that I personally am very keen on as well, this idea of continuous learning. I just, I just wonder if we can um, maybe, without breaking any kind of client confidentiality, if you could maybe give us an example of the kind of work you do now in your, in your role at Booz Island. Is there any kind of particular projects that uh, that are interesting to you that you'd maybe like to share with the listeners? Well, I certainly cannot share any client information sure. or even name any clients, so so that that's true in any business, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, but uh, for me personally, my role is, is, is um, horizontal, if you want to call it that way. Uh, so we have a lot of vertical accounts and vertical markets like healthcare and national defense, uh, cybersecurity, and a variety of things like this. I mean, just a lot of different aspects that are vertically focused. Uh, I'm a horizontal guy, so I, so I sort of have the executive level discussion. So I, so I both have that conversation, again, at an executive level, like what kind of data do you have, what kind of problems you're trying to solve, and as well as at the grassroots level, I do mentoring of our young data scientists because I, do, I did teach this at a university, so, so I, I really feel comfortable with that. It's, you know, part of my aptitudes in life is, is that I, I, I'm an educator at heart and I, I, I love doing that. So, so I have those conversations with people and it doesn't necessarily require specific understanding, uh, in-depth actually coding of a solution for that client. And it just, we have, we have you know, people who do that. But presumably and, being in, role, in your kind of horizontal role as you describe it, you're able to maybe see innovations and 
and ways of working in one industry which you can then apply across into different industries? Exactly right. So, uh, so uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, where I worked even before I started working there, but I was encouraged to work there, when I saw they published this thing called the Field Guide to Data Science, and I encouraged people to look at it. It's a free download, it's a large PDF, but uh, there's also a physical copy, so if I carry some to me, with me at conferences, sometimes I give it to people. And in this uh, Field Guide to Data Science, which was really an amazing production, Again, like I said, I was so impressed, I wanted to work for this company. And then, then a second edition came out and I contributed to that. But within that document, there's a story about air traffic safety. And it's really interesting because it's used this, this technique called Bayesian Belief Network. So a Bayesian Belief Network is basically a way of determining causality, right? So, so you can you, you look at the different occurrences of events A and B. And given A, what's the likelihood of B? Given B, what's the likelihood of A? And so if you do this across all possible events, you find that some, some occurrences or conditional probabilities are just random, that, that there's no extra lift given A. It could be B, C, D, or E. There's no, but given B, it's always A. So, so there must be some kind of causal direction there because when B happens, A happens. But when A happens, lots of things. So we apply this to uh, air traffic safety incident reports to identify specific causes of, of safety incidents. And I'm not talking necessarily about plane crashes because those are rare about say runway incursions or two airplanes being on the same runway at the same time or things that could be you know a safety problem uh, so but those all, all of those incidents even though they may not end in something drastic happening there's there's they still need to be reported and so we analyzed these incident reports and and, and built this bayesian network as it was called bayesian belief network because you because you now you understand sort of what are some of the causal factors for these incidents and just as, as a simple example, one of the most common sort of factors of, of sort of two, run, two planes on the same runway or two, two planes being assigned the same landing strip. <laughs> well, hopefully that was corrected before it happened. Yes, it did. Uh, or, or, or maybe even a runway incursion, that is a plane sort of like going off the runway, <laughs> not making the turn when they're supposed to. Uh, in a lot of cases, it was traced back to one simple cause, and that, that was air traffic controllers who were working a second straight shift without sleep, wow. working a double shift without sleep. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we applied the same technique uh, for a private uh, hospital client and, and, and did the same thing for sort of nur uh, nursing staff. And again, this wasn't the, the purpose of this was not to like uh, uh, challenge people on, on, their, on their individual performance, but was, was to improve the overall general performance of the system. Okay, so, so, so the nursing staff agreed to be monitored uh, in terms of their, 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 sort of their alertness, their awakeness, and, and they also self-reported their own mistakes. That is, they gave their own medication or they missed giving a medication to a patient or something like this. And so again, it was not from the perspective we wanted to go after these people. It was just a question of what do we see are the causal factors for safety incident violations. And it was exactly the same thing. People who were working the second consecutive shift without sleep. And I know all about this because one of my daughters now is, is, a, is a night nurse in an ER. And, uh, and she's pretty tired after 12 hours. I can imagine if someone was working 24 straight hours, because uh, typically the shifts are 12 hours. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to be attended by someone who's on their 24th hour. So I'm not, I'm not saying these people are, are prone to mistakes, but, mm. but, but the likelihood of a mistake, again, this is the Bayesian side of that equation, sure. it's a statistical likelihood estimate. The likelihood of a, of a safety issue is higher, obviously. Of course, this is common sense. You say, why did you need to do this algorithm? But, but 
I'm just getting, I'm giving you one example. But you're able to quantify out, as well, out, out of an enormous richness of a database, especially mm -hmm. for the air traffic safety incident report. Yeah. We, we had hundreds of thousands of safety incidents reports that we analyzed. Mm -hmm. Not me, that was before my, I joined the company. Uh, they were all handwritten. So imagine the data challenge there, right? So first of all, so again, talking to the client, what kind of data do you have? Well, we have notes from pilots. Well, what form are the notes in? Are they tired? No. Oh, they're handwritten. Hmm. Now, I don't know yeah. if their handwriting is as bad as doctors, <laughs> but yeah, so, so first of all, you got to get over the hurdle of, 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 of converting handwritten paper to digital format and, and then, of course, doing quality assurance on that. And, and then you start doing the, the modeling of the words, right? Natural language processing, topic modelings. Do these words indicate this type of incident or that type of incident? And so forth and so forth. And then, of course, also in these handwritten notes was the time of day. Uh -huh and the weather conditions, which you again have to extract that contextual information from the handwritten. Uh -huh. And that's important because the weather conditions obviously could affect a, an incident, mm -hmm. as well as nighttime or daytime. So you, anyway, anyway so, so these are the kinds of challenges that uh, you, you may say, well, yeah, it was obvious that this would have, was the causal factor and those incidents, but there's there are hundreds of other types of incidents you know, that, yeah, sure. you know, that can be uh, evaluated. For example, someone, you know, some plane being assigned to the you know, to the wrong gate, and then 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 it causes a, fly, a flight delay to move the plane, uh, which then propagates across the air system. And whenever they have start having delays at one airport, that propagates across the whole network. Yeah. And so there's all kinds of things that you discover yeah. uh, when you look at the data. That That's way. absolutely fascinating. Unfortunately, we, we're kind of getting a bit short of time, but I did want to ask you, while you're here, I know when I started this interview, I, I, I essentially asked you how your crystal ball was at the start of your career and whether you could see your career forward, and, and clearly you can't. But if I could maybe just bring it forward to the present day and say if you, if you can sort of clear some of the mist out of your crystal ball, I mean, what are the things that, you, that really interest you about this field of data science going forward? I mean, what are the, what are the key trends that you see now and uh, what are the areas that really excite you looking forward? Oh, I'm so excited about a lot of this. <laughs> it's like the kid in the candy store. <laughs> um, so one of my, one of my uh, interesting topics nowadays for me is, is uh, Internet of Things. And, I, and people think of Internet of Things uh, sometimes lim in a limited way. Uh, so first of all, I wanted to dispel that rumor. Uh, so, so what I mean by that is sometimes people say it's just wearable devices, so you have a health monitor on your wrist. Sometimes people say it's just the thermostat in my house that controls my temperature when I'm home or not home. Or, uh, but it gets more interesting when that Internet of Thing is, is the device in your refrigerator that identifies just from a, as a camera uh, what's in your fridge, what's not in your fridge, what's the date on the products, and, and so, so whether you need to buy something, and then if it can automatically reorder milk or reorder bread for you or something like this, and it shows up at your front door because a drone delivered it uh, without you even intervening. Uh, now we're talking really interesting, right? Because now uh, your, the products in your fridge and the fridge itself and the store and the supply chain and the and the and the warehouser and the and the original supplier, the source of, of that product that you're being shipped to you, all those things have to come into play. So Internet of Things for me, I like to call it the Internet of Context, because now all these different sensors that we're putting on cars and planes and in the weather and on the environment and every place, it's it, it's giving us contextual information about everything. So if a, if a, if a machine fails. All right. What was the contextual factors? Was it the temperature? Was it the operating conditions? Was it the speed of the motor? I mean, so historically, time series analysis. So this is my fun. This is my fun example. Uh, so traditional time series analysis, you, you try to do a predictive forecast from a time series, 
And the most common technique is called autoregressive mm -hmm. forecasting. So it basically says whatever pattern we saw in the past, we'll see in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, then you'll miss the black swan events, the, the really unusual tipping points, because they, if they've never happened before, you can't predict them. Mm -hmm. So how do you ever predict this? And I, and I say you can, because you, if you get all the contextual information together, you can say under these conditions, this type of failure mode will happen. Under these types of conditions, this tipping point will happen. Under these types of economic, social, political conditions, you'll have a stock market crash. Or you may have a stock market volatility. So you may not be able to say exactly what will happen in a time series sense, but you will say there is going to be some event given these conditions. So the same thing with machine failure. You can look at the time series of machine performance and you're trying to predict failure, and if all you have was the past time series, well, there, the machine hasn't failed before, so you'll predict it'll, it'll, So if you just take a textbook on time series analysis mm -hmm. and nothing else but that textbook, it'll never predict machine failure because what happened in the past will continue forward. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously that's wrong, but now we have sensors and everything. We can, again, measure all these other conditions and other factors. And, and so for me, that's in, that enrichment mm -hmm. of data across every process and person and product in the world gives us insights and understandings that we've never had before. And that's, that really excites me. Yeah, and, and me too, Kirk, I have to say. Unfortunately, we've got to the end of our time here. I could uh, obviously speak to you at a greater length. I know you said to me earlier that it's your first time in Scotland. I hope if we uh, if we ever get you back here that you'd come back and do another chat. Well, I don't, I I don't want that to be an if. I could, talk, I could talk to you much longer, but unfortunately we are at the end of our time. So it just remains for me to thank Kirk Bond again, Principal Data Scientist and Executive Advisor at Booz-Allen Manhattan. Thanks very much for coming in. And and uh, yeah, well, hope you enjoy your time in Scotland and we'd love to see you back again soon. Thank you, Richard. I look forward to the invitation. To find out more about data science in Scotland, please visit the Data Lab's website at www.thedatalab.com.